1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting at verse 11, says, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also you do. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men, See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. This morning, our goal is going to be look at what this passage has to teach us about healthy church relationships. That is, not healthy relationships between churches, although that's probably a topic that should be addressed at some point but healthy relationships among members of this church. Now, I don't know that I would argue that we have a lot in common with the church at Thessalonica to which this was written. In fact, several commentators have pointed out that Paul's final admonitions here in this chapter are so general that they could have been written to any church. It could have been written to our church, but we know it's God's word, so it was written for our church. Additionally, I don't think it's Paul's purpose to address any particular problem that existed in the church at Thessalonica to whom this is addressed. Quite the opposite, actually. Look at verse 11 again quickly. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify, that is, build up one another, even as also you do. So as Paul is winding down this letter, starting at verse 11, he issues this series of short exhortations as commands for this assembly to obey. It includes, you'll see through the rest of the chapter, some of the shortest statements you'll find in Scripture. Verse 16, rejoice evermore. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. Verse 19, don't quench or stifle the spirit verse 25 brothers pray for us right almost all of these final verses could be broken down into similar very short commands so as he wraps up he says in verse 11 comfort yourselves together and edify or build up one another does that mean that the church there was failing in their job to encourage and build up one another not at all He adds at the end of verse 11, even as you also do. Or in other words, keep doing this, right? Do this just like you have been doing. But listen, the Apostle Paul does not assume that just because the church is doing well, that that church will continue doing well. Present success is not a promise of future obedience. We know this to be true of ourselves. There are some things that we need to be doing better, but those things that we are doing right, we need to continue doing right. And so Paul writes this to the church at Thessalonica in the same way. Now you'll note that verse 11 begins with the word wherefore. 
And I always am challenged when you're going to break into the middle of one of Paul's letters that you're going to read a text that begins with wherefore. That word wherefore means because of that. So when the very first thing in our text says because of that, we really need to spend a moment and understand, well, because of what? Right? And so, very briefly, what you need to know about the church at Thessalonica, they were doing well. But they had also had some people who had misconceptions about the return of the Lord Jesus, right? They were awaiting his coming, which is what all Christians in all ages should be doing. We should look forward to the return of Jesus in glory. But as they were awaiting awaiting his coming, it occurred to some of the saints in the church that Well, those who have died as they're awaiting the coming of the Lord Jesus, they are going to miss out because they didn't live to see that great event. Paul says, I want you to understand, those saints aren't missing anything. Look back at chapter 4, verses 14 through 17 for a second. He tells them, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so also them which sleep, or them who have died in Jesus, will God bring with him. For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that they which are alive and remain to the coming of the Lord shall not proceed, is what that word means, prevent, proceed, them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. So leading up to this text, Paul is assuring the saints at the church that both those who are living and those who have died are still perfectly united with the Lord Jesus if, according to chapter 4, verse 14, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Right? If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, even if you have died, you still have hope in Him. So look at chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, right before our text. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or asleep, that that means whether we're living or have died, we should live together with him. In other words, living saints are living for the Lord Jesus, and dead saints are really alive with the Lord Jesus, right? Right? This is the product of believing that Jesus has died and rose again. If you know that you are a sinner and you believe that the Lord Jesus has come and died for your sins and rose again to promise everlasting life to all of those who believe in him, then you have this same confidence that whether you are alive to see him return, or even if you've died before he returns, all of your hope is eternally in him. You are living for him, and if you've died, you have moved on to where you are living with him. 
Okay? This is what Paul wants us to understand. So, since Jesus has purchased that hope of salvation for all believers, as Paul's writing to those who are still living for Christ, he's going to tell them, well, since you're living still, how is it that you should live? This is the wherefore, right? Because of that. Comfort yourselves together, verse 11. And edify, build up one another, even as you also do. Now the next four verses, starting at verse 12, the Apostle Paul outlines how we accomplish what he's commanded in verse 11. Right? In verse 11, comfort one another, build each other up. And then in verses 12 through 15, he explains how it is we comfort one another and build one another up. It's through healthy church relationships. Essentially, what he teaches is that members of a church are to encourage and build up each other by actively engaging in healthy relationships defined by these clear biblical principles, right? Let me say that again. Members of a church are to encourage and build each other up by engaging in healthy relationships clearly defined by these biblical principles. Verses 12 through 15 show us three categories of healthy church relationships. We'll go through each of them one at a time. We'll see in verse 12 what members should expect from church leaders. In verse 13, what leaders should expect from church members. And in verses 14 and 15, what church members should expect from each other. Okay? None of these are completely exhausting the topic of church relationships, right? There's a lot more that the New Testament has to say. It's not Paul's goal to say everything there is to be said, but in each of these three categories, he offers individual actions to be taken in order to encourage and build up one another. So first, what members should expect from church leaders? Verse 12, we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So, drawing directly from that verse, I want you to see three qualities that church members should demand of church leaders. Three qualities church members should demand from church leaders. First, church leaders should be knowable. Right? Paul's appeal in verse 12 is to ask. That's what beseech means. It's to ask, really to urge, but to ask church members to know them which labor among you. This word know gets translated a variety of ways in other translations. They use words like recognize, acknowledge, appreciate, respect, and all of those are good because it carries the idea of respecting or honoring. But the basic meaning of that word to know is simply to know, to be acquainted with. The expectation of a church leader is not that he is some lofty, elevated celebrity who condescends to step from behind the curtain every seven days 
and speak some wisdom before disappearing again. This has just got to be someone that you can know, that you can be acquainted with. You should know how a church leader interacts with people in public. You should know what he's like at home. How, how does he talk when he coaches his daughter's softball team? What do the employees at his business have to say about him? Does he maintain his Christian character when he gets cut off in traffic? You know, how he represents the Lord Jesus to the world at large, you have to know. In fact, Hebrews 13, 7 even says to consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate your faith. You should interact with church leaders so that you know them and know whether or not their faith is worth imitating. Now, since I've promised to point out to you when the New Testament makes the expectation of a plurality of elders, I want you to be sure to see it here in this verse. Paul's writing to the church at Thessalonica and says to the brothers there to know them, plural, which labor among you and are over you in the Lord. In the New Testament, church leadership is never presented as a one-man show. Now, there's a couple other implications of this knowability of a church leader. First off, by knowing them, you can identify their giftedness. Think about this. As, as Paul writes to Timothy and to Titus, those sections where we know he outlines the qualifications of a pastor, the qualifications of an elder, right? So many times we read those wrong. He wrote those not so that Timothy and Titus would be able to disqualify everybody they ran into, right? He wrote those so that Timothy and Titus, who were left to ordain pastor elders, would be able to know individuals and identify them and say, look, they are qualified and gifted, right? I don't know why we read those passages as, as, as if they only exist to match a man up to him and say, look, you're not qualified. Timothy and Titus had this task of identifying elders, and you know these people, you can see whether or not they have the qualifications and the ability to teach, and that's who you make a church leader. You cannot identify church leaders or future church leaders unless you know them. You have to know them to be able to identify that they're gifted. Another important implication of this is that you share time together. You can't know a TV evangelist or an internet sensation. I told you last week, if you want to listen to preaching online, I will be glad to point you to people who do a much better job than me. But you cannot know them. You cannot be pastored by them. The call of pastoring is to, to work with those people who God has put you among, right? The calling here is to know those who labor among you. That's not something that a TV evangelist or an online internet preacher can do. You need church leaders who labor among you. Church leaders have to be knowable. Second, church leaders must work hard. 
The sense of this word know means to respect and honor. That respect does not come as a result of, you know, you gave the guy the title or you issued him a name tag. The respect that's due to church leaders is because they work hard. The word for labor here, as labor among you, is the same word the Lord Jesus used when he said to come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, right? It denotes exhausting toil and work. Now, a church leader can be a man who holds down a full-time secular job. The Apostle Paul managed to, I don't know how he did it. He managed to evangelize the known world, basically all the Mediterranean area, while working as a tent maker. He also encouraged churches to establish financial support for those who toil in the word. He, he wrote to Timothy and said to let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Listen, you can find pastors or elders who get up to teach or preach and they just get up to talk for a little while about whatever thoughts happen to come to mind. But you have a right, you have a responsibility to expect to hear the fruits of genuine labor from those who stand to bring God's word to you. It's work. Those who have done it will tell you that it's work. Every church member should expect leaders who willingly and honestly do that work. They should be knowable. They should work hard. Third, church leaders must exercise authority. Paul tells the church there in verse 12, to know them which are over you. The word over literally means to rule over or to lead. When Paul issues the qualifications for an elder and he says they have to rule their houses well, they have to lead their house, just as a man leads his family, pastor elders lead a church. Y'all, this might seem obvious, but I'm going to say something really deep here. Church leaders lead the church. That's what it means. This does not mean that church leadership is a dictatorship or an authoritarian rule. The Apostle Paul qualifies what kind of leadership this is using two phrases there in verse 12. First, pastor elders are over you, he says, in the Lord right? Pastoral leadership comes with divine accountability. In his first letter, the apostle Peter writes to elders and calls them shepherds. That's literally what the word pastor means is shepherd, but he calls them under shepherds because the Lord Jesus is the chief shepherd. Right? I've said before, the organizational structure of a church is there's the Lord Jesus and below him is everybody else. So then, how would we say that pastor elders rule over a church? Well, they lead, Paul says, in the Lord through declaring the Lord's word. As the second way, Paul qualifies leadership by adding that phrase at the end of verse 12 and admonish you. Well, admonish sounds harsh. It, it sounds like pastor elders get to berate the congregation if you don't do what he wants. But the word simply means to teach. 
and we know what they're to teach. If they rule in the Lord and they teach, they are teaching the Lord's word. You know, the authority of a pastor is limited to the divine authority of God's word. It's important that, that everyone understands this. It's, at his church out in California, John MacArthur occasionally holds some question and answer sessions, and you can watch them online. In one session, he was asked, quote, to what extent a member of a church is required to obey the pastor? How much authority does a pastor have in the life of his congregants? And after only a brief pause, MacArthur correctly answered, none. No authority. There is no strength of personality or experience or, or education or knowledge or, or giving someone a title which grants them authority. The only authority is the word of God. A pastor has no authority beyond scripture and what scripture says. But as a qualified man with a spiritual gift to teach, opens the word of God and admonishes, teaches in the Lord, being led by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit intended meaning of the text. And you see what the text means. If you refuse to submit to that teaching, it is not an expression of you rejecting pastoral authority. It is, it is an expression of you rejecting divine authority. This carries the authority of God himself. Listen, thus saith Jason is meaningless. Thus saith Andrew does not inspire obedience. But thus saith the Lord demands submission to his authority. That's all a church leader has to offer. You have the right to expect church leaders who are knowable, who labor in the word, and who exercise authority in the Lord by teaching the Word of God. That's what members should expect from church leaders. Now, in verse 13, what leaders should expect from church members. Actually, before jumping into verse 13, let's just embrace for a second an implication of verse 12. If church leaders are to be knowable, church members are put into the position where you have to make the effort to know them, right? I can't just show up at your door unannounced and invite myself in and says, hey, it's time for a get-to-know-me session, right? None of y'all want to do that. I don't want to do that, right? But my life has to be open. A church leader's life has to be open. And you have to make the effort to know that person. And verse 13, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. Church leaders should have the expectation of regard or respect, not for the great person that they are, but for the sake of the work they do. There's actually a subtle contrast between verses 12 and 13. I don't know that I'll explain it well. I'm going to try to explain what Paul wrote and then just tell you what he means. Okay? He uses a different word in the original language for labor in verse 12 than he uses for work in verse 13. In verse 12, the pastors and elders 
labor among you. That is to say, they do hard toil, they do hard work in the word. In verse 13, the word work is focused less on the effort that they put in and more on the product of that effort. So, let me explain it like this. The call in verse 13 is not to respect and love a pastor because of the gifts that they possess. It is to respect and love pastors and elders who thoughtfully exercise whatever gifts it is that they possess. Or, let me try to explain it another way. You can love and respect a pastor whom the Spirit has enabled because he's a, a counselor and a preacher and a teacher and an administrator and a dozen other kinds of gifts. But that's respecting and loving a guy because of his giftedness, not for the work. Right? The calling of verse 13 is that you would that that it leads the church to respect and love a man who diligently exercises whatever gifts he's been given, that you know him and you can say he's working hard to do everything it is that God's enabled him to do. Paul's essentially saying that pastors and elders deserve respect based on their faithfulness to the work. Okay? The ending phrase of verse 13, be at peace among yourselves, is a final word, I think, both for leaders and members. There are times, how <laughs> it'll shock you, there are times when the church leaders and the church members can find themselves at some tension between one another. The leaders might get frustrated at the church's unwillingness to follow their lead, while the church might be rightfully frustrated with the leader's inability or unwillingness to show that the way he's leading is directly from Scripture. This call to be at peace argues for both the members and the leaders to reject any tendency to treat their relationship as adversarial. The goal of all of us should be to love and serve the Lord Jesus, to help others love and serve the Lord Jesus. And so while there are challenges inherent in that relationship, we are at peace with one another because the Lord Jesus has purchased that peace for us with his blood. So verse 12 says what members should expect from church leaders. Verse 13 is what leaders should expect from church members. Verses 14 and 15 is what church members should expect from each other. And that's important you see that there's this transition that happens at verse 14, right? Back at verse 12, Paul begins to write about church leaders and church members, and he opens by saying, we beseech you brothers, right? Now in verse 14, he's introducing another category of obedience what church members should expect of one another. And he uses the same kind of language, right? Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men, see that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Again, all of this is descriptive in how to encourage and build up one another within the assembly. And for what it's worth, verses 14 and 15 are actually written in stronger language than verses 12 and 13. 
right? When you back up at verse 12 and he uses that word beseech, which means to ask, right? But in verse 14, exhort is to urge or to plead. So while Paul asks the church to have healthy relationships with leadership, he insists that the church deal with issues that exist among church members. So we'll go quickly here, but I want you to see six commands for mutual care in verses 14 and 15. Six commands for mutual care. First, warn the unruly. It is the job of church members to exercise mutual care over one another by warning the unruly, he says. That word unruly is talking about more than just being a little disobedient or inappropriate behavior. Later on in his second letter in Thessalonians chapter 3, he writes to withdraw yourselves from every brother who walks disorderly. It's the same word, disorderly, unruly. It carries the idea of disobedient or irresponsible. It is actually a military term in the day that describes a soldier who steps out of line, abandons his posts, stops following orders. Okay? The unruliness Paul describes here can take a lot of forms. It can be those who are gifted but refuse to engage in church work. It can be those who, you know, threaten to pack up and leave if they don't get their way. It can be hypocritical members who like their way of doing nothing more than anybody else's way of doing something. It can be anyone who justifies their sinful choices with the attitude that their opinion carries more weight than the word of God. Church members have a responsibility to warn other out-of-order church members about their behavior and encourage them to get back into an orderly walk. Second, he says to comfort the discouraged. He actually says comfort the feeble-minded. And verse 14, feeble-minded seems a little bit harsh for a title nowadays. Most modern translations are going to use the word faint-hearted or disheartened, right? Disheartened. The original language, it's a term, literally means to be little-souled, okay? So uh, it describes a lack of confidence or, or being overwhelmed by fear. So it might help to explain this one by contrast. Someone who's unruly or disobedient that Paul said to warn, that's the kind of person who would refuse to get involved because they're certain they are too good to do the work. By contrast, someone who's discouraged or or faint-hearted is the kind of person who doesn't get involved because they think they're not good enough to do the work. Paul calls on church members to identify those who are discouraged and encourage them, comfort them, assure them that they are needed and they are useful. Tell them, look, it's not about whether or not you're good enough. The Lord Jesus is good enough. And all the work we do is on the basis of his goodness and faithfulness. Comforting and the discouraged is essentially helping them to move along with the church instead of leaving them behind. Third, he says help the weak or support the weak. This could be talking about physical weakness, 
It's unlikely that's what Paul intends, but people who are physically weak also need help. Paul's concern, though, is for the spiritually weak. In Romans 14.1, he calls them weak in the faith. And later on in Romans 15.1, he says, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not just to please ourselves. So spiritually speaking, some folks in the assembly are going to be weak. They are going to struggle with learning doctrine. They're going to battle with overcoming sin. Church members are called to minister to those who are weak and give them help. Y'all, ministry is messy. And it's usually not that you are going to be called to help spiritual giants move on down the road. You have to get involved with people who are weak. Which brings Paul to his next point. Fourth, he says, be patient with everybody. Be patient toward all men. If you are going to get involved with people who are disorderly in their behavior, people who are faint-hearted and discouraged, with people who are weak helping them to move along, you are going to need to express patience with them. With whatever kind of thing you're dealing with, it's going to require patience. Sometimes the Bible speaks to us about embracing patience in the face of challenging circumstances, but this text is actually telling us to embrace patience in the face of challenging people. The easiest thing to do is for us to say, I'm not going to get involved in that because I know I don't have enough patience. Let me ask, biblically speaking, how do you develop patience? Well, James chapter 1, verse 3 says, The trying of your faith works patience. Romans 5, 3 says, Tribulation works patience. Patience is developed by finding yourselves in difficult situations or with difficult people who require Patience. It's like a muscle. You exercise that thing, it gets stronger. Okay? Your lack of patience is never an excuse to withhold yourself from warning the disorderly or comforting the discouraged or helping the weak. Right? You don't get to say, I don't have enough patience for that. You need to grow some more patience by getting involved in that. Fifth, refuse retaliation. Verse 15, see that none render evil for evil unto any man. H.B. Charles very astutely notes there is a transition that occurs again here at verse 15. He said verse 14 is a description of how to deal with troubled people. Verse 15 is a description of how to deal with troublemakers. And there is a fine line between being a troubled person and being a troublemaker. Okay? And so verse 15 explains how to deal with troublemakers. There are two steps in this. A negative step and a positive step. The first, the negative, is to refuse retaliation. He says, do not repay evil for evil. 
When someone does you wrong, do not do wrong back to them. Y'all, people are imperfect. Church people are imperfect. Even within the Lord's church, you will be mistreated by others. And when that happens, when it's from your brothers and sisters in Christ, it is especially hurtful. Do not repay evil with evil. You might want to. (laughs) You will want to. You will tell yourself, well, I can because they deserve it. You might even be right. They do deserve it. It's not your place to give people what they deserve. This gets harder. The command, Paul says, is valid inside the church and outside the church. Verse 15, see that none render evil for evil unto any man. Listen, the rules for Christian behavior do not change when you walk out that door or any other door in case you're looking for a different exit sign. You cannot repay evil for evil. You can't do wrong because someone did wrong to you. Let me suggest to you an area of life in which we seem to have forgotten this. It especially comes up in political discussion, particularly online. You don't get to lie, misrepresent, insult, curse, or disrespect others. And when you respond with, yes, I can, because that's what they do, remind yourself, that's what they do. That is not what we do. We do not repay evil for evil. Now, before we move on, let's make sure that we're getting Paul's application correct here. I asked a very similar question to this last week. Is it okay for you to repay evil for evil? not a trick question we kind of just covered it right no it's not okay you cannot repay evil for evil but is that what paul's telling us in this text look at verse 15 again see that no one render evil for evil unto any man paul's command here is not simply telling you that you have an individual responsibility to refuse to retaliate when someone does you wrong. It's bigger than that. This is in the context of how church members behave towards other church members. And in that case, he's telling church members to make sure that no one repays evil for evil. Unfortunately, When we want to retaliate, instead of saying we, I ought to just say I, okay? When I want to retaliate, you can tell me whether it's true about you. When someone does me wrong and I want to retaliate, the very first thing I want to do is come to my righteous, holy brothers and sisters in Christ and lay out my case and say, this is what I'd like to do and hope beyond hope that you say, Well, you're right. You ought to do it. Go get them. 
Paul's command here isn't just that as an individual, you refuse retaliation. His command is collectively, we are to encourage our fellow church members to refuse retaliation. So he expands on this idea a little bit more in Romans 12, verses 14 through 19. I'm just going to paraphrase for you what he says there. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse them. Do not repay evil for evil, but whenever possible, live in peace with all people. Do not avenge yourself. Leave wrath to God. He said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. It's not our job to give people what they deserve. That's God's business. The sixth command for mutual care is the positive one in dealing with troublemakers, right? The negative one is refuse retaliation. The positive one is resolve to do good. He writes at the end of verse 15, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Again, I think H.B. Charles is helpful here. He said there are three ways to treat people. Three ways to treat people. You can do evil to those who do good to you. That's the way of Satan. You can do good to those who do good to you and evil to those who do evil to you. That's the way of the world. Or you can do good to those who do evil to you. That is the way of Christ. We should always seek to do good, for that is what the Lord himself has done. We are to follow the example of our Lord Jesus. Y'all, let me ask you, did you receive justice from the Lord Jesus? Is that what you got? Did you get what you deserved? No, you got mercy and grace. Right? Through the work of the cross, he withheld the punishment that we deserved. He took it in our place that we might receive the salvation that we did not deserve. And if that's what the Lord Jesus has done, then why would we think that it's our place to go about the world dispensing justice in his name? That's his business. He's left it up to us to be examples of mercy and grace to follow. This is true in the way we deal with the world at large. It is even more important in how we deal with those who are part of the church. In Galatians 6.10, Paul writes, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially those who are of the household of faith. So, 1 Thessalonians 5.11-15 is a primer on healthy church relationships. It tells us what members should expect from church leaders, what leaders should expect from church members, and what church members should expect from one another. Immediately after this text, I'm not going to start preaching it, but immediately after this text, the Apostle Paul transitions from our relationships with one another to the relationship we have with God himself, right? Starting in verse 16. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks for everything. Don't stifle the Holy Spirit. Don't despise God's word, right? But that relationship that we have with the Lord does not exist in a bubble 
outside of the relationships we have with church members. You cannot be in sync with God while you are out of sync with God's people. While this text is not comprehensive of all the teaching in regard to relationships within the church, it does set our expectations for one another and how it is that we can honor the Lord Jesus. Members of a church are to encourage and to build one another up by actively engaging in healthy relationships defined by these clear biblical principles. And if at this point, your reaction to the text is to say, yeah, that's right, and I sure hope so-and-so is listening, then stop right now, clear your mind of that, and read the text again, prayerfully asking the Lord to show you your responsibility. And when you see it, start pursuing healthy church relationships. Okay.